The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Christmas Day, so happy Christmas everybody, and I'm delighted to be joined by my good friend Dr Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you, and happy Christmas, Andrew. Thank you so much. And um, the message for today, and folks, Peter's been doing this on this show, this is the fifth year We've put a show together for Christmas Day, Peter's Christmas Message. Today's one is the real story of the greatest man ever to be born, Peter's Christmas Message. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Many of you may have heard that wonderful poem written over a century ago called That One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or a home. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. That is the poem. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest man ever born, the greatest man ever to have lived in all of history. He changed the world forever. When Jesus was born, he transformed the very way we measure time. He turned aside the river of the ages out of its course and he lifted the centuries off the hinges. His birthday, his incarnation touched 
and transformed time. Now the whole world counts time as before Christ, B.C., and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Jesus Christ is the central figure of history. When we speak about this being 2022, 2022 what? 2020 years of the year of our Lord, after Christ. He split the ages. And so even when atheists write the dates, he is actually acknowledging the centrality of Christ. The world before Christ was a world without hospitals, a world without charity, a world without respect for the sanctity of life. Hospitals were an innovation of Christianity, hence the healing symbol of a cross, normally a red cross, represents hospitals. The nursing profession was founded by Christians, such as Florence Nightingale, out of devotion for Christ. One of history's greatest humanitarian movements, the International Red Cross, was founded by Christians in response to the scriptural injunctions to care for the sick and the suffering. And many people may be surprised to know that. And I've been to the International Committee of the Red Cross headquarters and museum in Geneva. And one of the first things you see in the exhibit is the Bible of Henry Dunant, the founder of the Red Cross. And then you see a whole lot of scriptures in English, French, and German. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others you want to be done unto. Heal the sick. Preach the gospel. And all the good Samaritan, go and do likewise. And these scriptures are there. This is in the International Red Cross HQ uh, Museum in Geneva. And just reminding us of the fact that the greatest humanitarian movements in the world were founded by Christians in response to Christian injunctions and scriptural commandments and the examples of Christ. Jesus may not have written a book, but more books have been written about Jesus Christ than any other person in history. And, and by the way, it may surprise people to know that if you go to major museums such as, for example, the Library of Congress in the USA, which I've been, and you look up how many books have been written about certain characters, well, Jesus Christ is first and foremost, far and away, the subject of more books than, than any other figure in history, by far. A distant second is Martin Luther. Interesting. Uh, Professor Martin Luther from Wittenberg in Germany. He is the second most written about person in history, although a, a distant second, and everyone else becomes way off the distant thirds and so on. But it's important to note that Christians, such as Dr. Louis Pasteur, have fueled some of the greatest practical advances in medicine. Louis Pasteur probably saved more lives than any other individual in history through his inventions. The whole concept of charity was a Christian innovation. Benevolence or kindness to strangers was unknown before the time of Christ. It was the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ that has inspired the greatest acts of generosity, the greatest acts of hospitality, of self-sacrifice, and of service for the poor, the sick, and the needy for over 2,000 years. Before the advent of Christianity, every culture practiced slavery and human sacrifice. Even the highly esteemed Greek and Roman civilizations, not just human sacrifice and slavery, but child sacrifice was common amongst the pagan religions. The Aztecs in Mexico and the Inca Empire in Peru, they engaged in slavery and ritual rapes and mass human sacrifice. And Suti, the burning of widows on the funeral pyres of their husbands, was common practice in Hindu India before the missionary William Carey arrived. Slavery was eradicated as a result of the tireless efforts of Christians such as William Wilberforce and David Livingston, 
That's interesting today to see people trying to single out the British, maybe the Americans, but white Anglo-Saxons primarily as being guilty of slavery. And yet every single culture and religion practiced slavery before Christianity. What is unique about the British is that it was the British Christians, British evangelicals like William Wilberforce, who introduced opposition to slavery and brought about the abolition of slavery. And so the abolition of slavery movement is an achievement of evangelical Protestant Christianity. And Britain led the way in that. And it's interesting that the country that did more than any other country in the history of the world in terms of legislation, sacrifice, blood, toil, finances, to bring an end to slavery and set the captives free, has been blamed for the very slavery that still continues today in communist countries like Red China and Muslim countries in the Middle East. How interesting that the media seems to have a blind eye to those doing slavery today, such as China and Saudi Arabia, uh, and Mauritania and, and Mali and other countries like that. But they have... Uh, their targets out for people who abolished slavery over two centuries ago. So slavery was eradicated as a result of the tireless efforts of evangelical Protestant Christians like William Wilberforce and David Livingston. Respect for life and respect for liberty are fruit of Christianity. So those people today who are promoting abortion, euthanasia, pornography, perversion, they're not offering us progress, they're offering us a return to pre-Christian paganism. That's what the world was like before Christianity came. The positive impact of Jesus Christ on the world cannot be overstated. Everything from education to human rights, from public health to economic liberty, the things we cherish most and many of the blessings we take for granted, all can be traced to the spiritual and cultural revolution begun by our Lord Jesus Christ. The irrefutable fact is Christianity gave birth to science. Modern science began with the Protestant Reformation. The Bible played a vital part in the development of all scientific discovery. Every major branch of science was discovered and developed by a Bible-believing Christian. The Bible essentially created science. When we get into a car, when we start the engine, when we turn on the lights, when we drive to a hospital and receive an anesthetic before an operation, when we have an effective operation done in a germ-free environment, we need to remember we owe that all to Jesus Christ. Dr. James Kendi, in his book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born, wrote, Every school you see, public or private, religious or secular, is a visible reminder of the religion of Jesus Christ. So is every college and university. So the phenomenon of education for the masses has its roots in Christianity. The pursuit of the knowledge of God in a systematic, philosophical, in-depth way gave rise to the phenomenon of universities all over the world. It was the Christian faith that gave rise to the very idea of higher learning. Most of the languages of the world were first set to writing by Christian missionaries. The Slavic language, for example, is named after Cyril, one of the great missionaries to the Slavs, and so the Cyrillic language is itself a creation of missionaries to the Russians who brought the Russians and Ukrainians to the Lord a thousand years ago. Now, in Africa, there's no doubt about it that virtually every language in Africa was first set to writing by Christian missionaries. The first book in most languages of the world has been the Bible. Christianity has been the greatest force for promoting literacy worldwide throughout all of history. The Christian missionary movement of the 19th century pioneered tens of thousands of schools throughout Africa. 
Asia and the islands of the Pacific, providing education for countless millions, even in the remotest jungles, to tribes which had never before had a written language that gave the gift of literacy. There is no doubt that Jesus Christ was, is the greatest teacher the world has ever known. When he spoke, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority. <coughs> the life, the teachings, the example of Jesus Christ, <coughs> pardon me, have profoundly influenced the whole development of education worldwide. The Great Commission of our Lord Jesus Christ is to make disciples of all nations, teaching them. From the very beginning, Christians have established schools. Amongst the many innovations in Christian education was that these Christian schools taught everybody, including girls and women, formally educating both sexes, both genders, is a Christian innovation. The Greeks and the Romans before the birth of Christ, did not formally educate girls. Only boys from the privileged classes obtained an education in ancient Greece and Rome. Christianity revolutionized education by making it available to all classes and to both genders. St. Augustine observed <coughs> that Christian women were better educated than pagan male philosophers. Every branch and level of education was pioneered by Bible-believing Christians. The very concept of graded education levels was introduced by a German Lutheran, Johann Sturm, in the 16th century. Another Lutheran, Frederick Froebel, introduced kindergartens, or gardens for children, kindergartens. Education for the deaf was also pioneered by Christians. Before Jesus Christ, Human life in the Greek and Roman world was extremely cheap. Infants born with a physical defect like blindness were commonly abandoned to die in the wilderness. In Greece, blind babies were literally cast into the sea. Those who survived their blind infancy or later became blind in childhood usually became galley slaves. Blind girls were commonly assigned to a life of prostitution. However, Jesus Christ showed particular compassion for the blind. He healed many blind individuals during his ministry on earth. And when the Roman persecution of the church ended in the 4th century, Christians established asylums for the blind. In the 19th century, Louis Braille, a dedicated Christian, who lost his eyesight at age three, developed the world's first alphabet that enabled blind people to read with their fingers. Sunday schools were begun by Robert Rakes in 1780 to provide boys and girls from the poorest homes with the gift of literacy and the riches of the scriptures. The first universities grew out of the monastic missionary centers, which had discipled Europe. The first university lecturers were the monks, the missionary monks who had collected the books, accumulated libraries, who were copying manuscripts. They were uniquely equipped for advanced academic study. Most universities began as Christian schools, including Oxford, Cambridge, Heidelberg, Basel, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. The greatest intervention in the field of learning was the printing press, which was invented by Johannes Gutenberg. 
And this was also fruit of the Christian faith. The very first book to ever be printed in the world was the Bible. The very name university testifies to its Christian origins. University means one truth, uni veritas. Isn't it time that teachers, lecturers, and professors took an in-depth look at the greatest teacher the world has ever known and the greatest book ever produced and the faith which inspired and pioneered every major branch of education and science? Just consider some of the everyday things which have been inspired by the Bible. The word breakfast comes from the concept of breaking the fast, break fast. The word restaurant comes from Jesus' promise in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Well, the first restaurant found in Paris in 1766 placed that verse from Matthew eleven twenty eight in bold letters outside this first public establishment dedicated to providing meals in a pleasant atmosphere. And over the years, it's gotten shortened to restaurant. The fact that our week consists of seven days is a testament to the fact that God created the world in six days and rest on the seventh. You know, during the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution, they tried to change the calendar to a 10-day week. I need not point out it didn't work. Uh, the Russians and the French also tried to change the calendar. In fact, the French Revolutionaries tried to turn a 1791 into the year one. And, uh, well, that failed too. The practice of Sunday being a day of rest dates back to the Christian tradition of honoring the first day of the week as the Lord's Day, a testament to the fact that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead on the first day of the week. So every time a newspaper publishes the date, it's a testimony to the centrality of Christ. So when we call this year 2022, we are acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the central focus of history. This is the year 2022 AD in the year of our Lord. The very word we use to say farewell to people, goodbye, it comes from the parting prayer, God be with ye. Hence the etymology of that strange spelling of goodbye. What does that come from? God be with ye. In Austria, uh, people greet one another with the words Gruß Gott, or greetings in God. And in Switzerland, it's Grutzi, which is an abbreviation of greetings in God. Well, in English, it's goodbye, as in God be with ye. The very term holiday comes from the term holy day. Our holidays are meant to be holy days, because all holidays in the world originally were Christian days. And hence, everything from Christmas, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, Ascension Day, and so on. The Bible, particularly the Ten Commandments, laid the framework and the legal foundations of Western civilization. The very first statute, the very first written restriction on the powers of government was Magna Carta, 1215. It was written by a pastor, Stephen Langton, and thoroughly saturated with scriptural principles. The Bible has inspired the greatest literature. Just think of books like Shakespeare, Milton, uh, Jane Austen, Dickens. Permeating these works is, you can see, they were people who were familiar with the Bible and so many biblical concepts come through some of the greatest literature. The greatest art, well, almost all biblical themes. The greatest examples of architecture, obviously the cathedrals. The age of exploration, world missions, the rule of law, separation of powers, checks and balances, representative government, the sanctity of life, and so much more that we take for granted, all was inspired by the Bible and those who took the Bible seriously. 
Christianity introduced a respect for life and liberty that was completely unknown before the coming of Christ. In the ancient world, the teachings of Jesus Christ halted infanticide, the killing of infants. It liberated women. It abolished slavery. It inspired the first charities and religious organizations. It created hospitals, established orphanages, and founded schools. In a medieval Middle Ages times, Christianity built libraries, invented colleges and universities, dignified labor, and converted the barbarians. In the modern era, Christian teaching has advanced science and inspired political, social, and economic freedom, promoted justice, and provided the greatest inspiration for the most magnificent achievements in art, architecture, music, and literature. Christianity has been the most powerful agent in transforming society for the better across 2,000 years. No other religion, no other philosophy, teaching, or movement, or nation has changed the world for the better as much as Christianity has done. Jesus Christ is the greatest man ever to be born, and the Bible is the greatest book ever written, without a shadow of a doubt. The Bible is also the number one best-selling book in all of history. It's estimated that well over 30 million Bibles and 100 million New Testaments are printed every year. The Bible has also been translated into more languages than any other book in history. Wise men still seek Christ. And so the question should be, what are you seeking for? Is it fun or friends, fame or fortune? Is it popularity, prestige or power? Have you noticed those impressive large Christmas trees set up in many shopping malls? Surely you've noticed the beautifully wrapped presents piled up under most of the trees. You will see many children's eyes wide as they look at the bright, shiny, shimmering presents, often with attractive ribbons around them. Well, over years, when my four children were very young, each of them asked, what's in those boxes? And the answer is, absolutely nothing. They're beautifully wrapped, they're attractively presented, but the presents under the Christmas trees and the shopping malls are empty. The world offers so much, but in the end, it turns to be empty. The world, the flesh, and the devil promise you everything you could possibly desire. If only you will buy their product or service, you promised all the fun and fame and fortune you could desire, all the power, popularity, prestige, possessions your heart could desire. But like those alluring, attractively looking, shimmering presents under the Christmas trees in the mall, the promises of the world turn out to be disappointingly empty. I mean, just think how they were telling you not that long ago, if you take this vaccination, I guarantee you, you will not get COVID, nor will you be able to spread it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, next thing we see, everyone from uh, Biden, Justin Trudeau, Boris Johnson, Cyril Ramposa, all of them with their double, treble, quadruple, boosted, and so on, and they still got COVID, and they still had to uh, socially distance and wear their masks. And so, you know, really, so what was the point? Um, <clears throat> that's the point. They they offer you things, and you find their promises turn out to be disappointing and empty. Do this, this, and this, and you'll get freedom. And well, what do they do? They take away your freedom. For those who pursue materialism, they will find merry-go-rounds that get them nowhere, mazes that get them lost, and dead-end streets that frustrate their desires, hedonism, the love of pleasure, and existentialism, living just for the moment, prove to be short-sighted, meaningless, empty, purposeless. What are you searching for? What is your purpose in life? What is in the boxes that you've been obtaining from the world? 
don't waste your time and your life on the empty boxes of the world. The time-wasting treadmills of trends and fashions and fads, they're all ultimately frustrating. Do not settle for less than God's very best. God gives the best to those who leave the choice to him. And you will seek me and you will find me when you search me with all your heart. We read in Jeremiah 29, 30. So what is your life purpose? What are you seeking for in life? What is your ultimate purpose? Well, a Westminster Catechism says our, our purpose should be to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Christmas should remind us of the danger of missing out on what is most important. We read in the Bible, there was no room for them in the inn. How must all those innkeepers in Bethlehem feel that turned away the greatest man ever to be born? They had no room for Emmanuel, God with us. They could not accommodate the creator, the eternal judge, before whom they will have to stand on day of judgment. They missed the opportunity of all time. They could have welcomed the Holy Family, but they missed out. Our Lord Jesus was born in a stable, in a cave amongst farm animals. Where were the priests? Wise men traveled great distances in order to worship the king of kings. The shepherds on the hillside came and they worshiped. But where was the mayor of Bethlehem? There's no indication that any of the elders or leading citizens of Bethlehem even acknowledged the greatest event ever to occur in Bethlehem before or since. They missed out on the greatest opportunity, the greatest event ever. Where was the high priest? Where was King Herod? It's extraordinary to note that the entire priesthood of Israel all the thousands employed at the temple. They missed the birth of the Messiah. I mean, the whole purpose for the existence. <laughs> All the priests, everyone employed in the temple missed it. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. At his birth, there was no room for Jesus in any of the homes or inns in Bethlehem. Today, there seems to be no room for Jesus at the UN. Nor is there space for Jesus in most of the Xmas cards in most of the schools and in much of the music. Even nativity scenes are discouraged and banned in many cities around the world. Is there room in your heart for Jesus? Christmas is the season for giving. Why do we give and receive gifts at Christmas time? After all, it's not our birthday. Why do some people exchange their gifts on Christmas Eve and others do on Christmas Day? Well, a biblical day began at sunset. God's day begins in darkness and ends in light. Today, with our electricity and clocks, we calculate days from midnight to midnight. But people throughout history calculated from sunset. And so, interesting that man's day begins in darkness and ends in darkness. So, Christmas Day, 25th of December, biblically begins as the sun sets on Christmas Eve, the 24th of December. For this reason, many families from Germanic, Nordic ancestry celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. And in Austria, they uh, actually devised um, Silent Night to be sung on Christmas Eve. And my wife, who grew up in Austria, has said that was their tradition. They would go to Christmas Eve services, not Christmas Day services. Christmas Day was uh, for the family. Christmas Eve was for going to church and worshipping. Uh, interesting. Well, we give gifts at Christmas time to honor the greatest gift ever given for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life freely you have received freely freely give it is far more blessed to give than to receive yet we have 
people who still have not grasped this most basic truth of Christmas. To many, Christmas season for getting, not giving. Many of the hands are asking, where is my Christmas box? What do you have for me? Give me, give me, give me. Complete strangers seem to have no shame demanding some gift for themselves on Christmas. We should remind them whose birthday they're celebrating. Do you remember whose birthday we celebrated on Christmas? The very first Christmas gifts were given by wise men from the East. They traveled great distances across difficult and dangerous terrain in order to worship the greatest person ever born. They presented extraordinary gifts, gold for the king of kings, frankincense for the high priest of all priests, myrrh for the sacrifice that would end the need for any other blood sacrifices. These men from the East were wise. They recognized when the Messiah would be born. They discovered where he would be born. And they came from Babylon and Persia, where Daniel had served. So they were no doubt aware of the prophecies made by Daniel, which clearly identified when the Messiah would be born. And the gifts they brought were so appropriate. They recognized this was not merely an heir to the throne, a prince being born. Where is he who has been born king, they asked. The wise men recognized that Gold was the most appropriate for the king of all kings. Frankincense is symbolic of the prayers and worship. So in presenting frankincense, they recognized that the Messiah would be high priest of all high priests. And myrrh was an ointment used for burial. Jesus Christ was coming as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. At Christmas, remember the crib. But we also need to look beyond the crib to the cross. The wood of the crib should remind us of the wood of the cross on which our Lord would die. A willing sacrifice for your sins and mine. But the wise men looked beyond the wood of the crib and the wood of the cross to the gold of the crown. For we no longer worship a babe in a manger or even a suffering saviour on the cross. We worship a risen, ascended, redeemer, reigning on high. He will come again. He will judge the living and the dead. The crib the cross and the crown. The crib reminds us of the incarnation. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The cross reminds us of why Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived, and he died the death we deserve to die. The crown points to the return of the King of Kings and the eternal judge. The first time Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But the next time he will not come as the Lamb. When Jesus comes again, he'll come as the lion, the lion of Judah, to conquer and to judge. So the question is not, will you bow to Christ? The question is, when will you bow to Christ? Will you bow to Christ today, <clears throat> in the day of grace, when forgiveness is freely available, when the door to heaven is wide open, or will you bow on the day of judgment? when the door to salvation is firmly closed, when the day of grace has ended. We will either bow to Christ as Savior today, or we will bow to him as judge on that great and dreadful day of judgment. So as we remember his birthday on Christmas, we should ask, what gift will you give to the one whose birthday we're celebrating? What can you give to the Lord Jesus Christ? What gifts would be appropriate for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator, the Eternal Judge? our Savior and our Redeemer. Well, Andrew brought a little boy to Christ, and this little boy gave Jesus his lunch, five loaves and two fish. With that little boy's lunch, our Lord Jesus fed thousands with the food he multiplied. Jesus can do a lot with a little. 
And Lord Jesus pointed out that the widow who gave just a mite, the smallest coin possible, he said she put more than all the rest because while the widow's mite might have looked small in the eyes of those around, our Lord, knowing how little she had, recognized she had actually given more than she could. She had given everything she had. Mary gave Christ the gift of expensive perfume, anointing him for burial. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. Zacchaeus hosted Jesus in his home and he honored him by making restitution and donating much of his riches to the poor. What can you give Jesus on his birthday? Give him your attention. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What can you give the Lord Jesus Christ? You can give him your attention. You can study his word, learn his law, get to know the word of God, get to know the God, the word, meditate on his word, the Bible, determine to put first things first, Bible before breakfast, scripture before supper, psalm before lunch. Read through the whole Bible this year. That actually will only take you about 10 to 15 minutes a day to read four chapters of the Bible each day. There are 1,187 chapters in the Bible. So if you read just four chapters a day, you'll be able to read through the entire Bible in one year. How can you know his will unless you study his word? To obey is better than sacrifice. Determine to obey God. Dedicate your life to obeying the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28. Care for God's creation, improve God's creation, plant trees, cultivate gardens, adopt animals, care for the environment, recognize that all animals belong to God, treat animals with the care and the diligence of those who must give an account to the Creator and to the eternal judge. Be kind to God's animals. Ensure that animals have access to fresh, clean water and good, healthy food. Do not waste food. Think of your pets, think of the wild birds, think of other animals who can benefit. Don't litter, recycle. Be thoughtful and considerate. Obey the Great Commission. Dedicate your life to making disciples, teaching obedience to all things that the Lord has commanded. Introduce other people to Christ. Be alert to evangelistic opportunities. Give Christ your love, your devotion, your worship, your adoration. Give him your heart and your mind and your hands and your feet. Devote your time, your talents and your treasures to Christ and his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. Use your initiative and energy to advance the kingdom of God. Be wholehearted. Persevere to the end. Give Christ everything there is. Does Jesus have all of you that there is to have? Jesus said the widow gave all she had. What have you given God? Have you made promises you've gone back on? Have you made commitments that you've not honored? Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar. Go first. Be reconciled with your estranged brother. Make that phone call. Write that letter. Forgive. Ask for forgiveness. Do restitution. These would be acceptable gifts that you could give Jesus on his birthday. Jesus is the reason for the season. Wise men seek Christ. Give Christ your time, your talents, your treasure, your hands, your feet, your lips, your heart, your life. Give him your worship and obedience. Give him sacrifice, attention and adoration. To obey is better than sacrifice. Recognize the many evangelistic opportunities around you, especially at this Christmas season. When we can even approach strangers and shopkeepers and, and uh, wish them uh, Christmas blessings and uh, we at Christmas season often go around and take baked cookies to our neighbors or to the local police station, take gifts and toys to children in the local children's home who are stuck in the hospital over Christmas. 
There's so many things we can do. And at Christmas time, even strangers are more open than at other times of year. Don't waste your life on the empty boxes of this world. Do not settle for less than God's best. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is so much that we can praise God for during this Christmas season. It's so important that we must be one of those wise men who still seek Christ. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, I have a quick question. Well, well, a few questions, actually. But uh, staying with the topic of Christmas, um, I've heard many people in the independent media um, give their account of why they believe Jesus Christ was not born on Christmas Day. Uh, And I've heard it so often that when we covered this topic on our first Christmas message five years ago, I was ready to say to you, well, you know, you know Christ wasn't born on Christmas Day. And you delivered an account which convinced me that he was actually born at that time of year, an account I'd never heard anyone say before. So can you let the audience know why Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day? Back to you. Right. So, of course, people closer to the event uh, in the 2nd and 3rd century uh, determined the 25th of December and to to follow their example. So I'm I'm quoting now from Augustine and St. John Chrysostom and uh, Julius and Cyril. Uh, These are some early church fathers who determined 25 December. And you'd be interested to know they were using scriptures to justify it. So um, Luke 2 verse 6 says that the days were accomplished that Mary should be delivered. So we assume Jesus was a full-term baby born nine months after his conception. Now Luke one twenty six says that the angel Gabriel announced the conception of Jesus to Mary in the sixth month of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy. That's with John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. So Jesus was conceived about six months after his cousin John the Baptist was conceived. So when was John the Baptist conceived? Well, the scriptures suggest some answers because John's father was Zacharias, a Levite priest of the order of the course of Abijah, that you read in Luke 1 verse 5. So according to 1 Chronicles 24 verse 7 to 19, King David divided the priest into 24 orders, and these orders took turns serving in the temple for a period of eight days twice a year, separate from their wives and children. During Zacharias and the other priests of the order of Abijah, They served during the 10th and the 24th weeks of the year, according to the Hebrew calendar. So the angel of the Lord spoke to Zacharias while he executed the priest's office before God in order of his course. We read this in Luke 1.8. That is, while he was performing his service in the temple, and after his course was finished, he left the temple, returned to his wife Elizabeth, and John was conceived, as we read in Luke 1.23-24. So if this was after the second course, that is the 24th week of the year, John would have been conceived around the end of September, beginning of October, and born around either beginning of uh, the end of June or beginning of July the next year. <clears throat> so Jesus' conception six months later would have occurred around late March or early April, and therefore his birth would be late December or early January. Now, <clears throat> it's interesting that St. John Chrysostom, uh, who lived between 347 and 407 AD, uh, he was the patriarch of Eastern Orthodoxy. He was the pastor of San Sophie, which is the great cathedral in Constantinople. Well, his status in Eastern Orthodoxy is like that of Augustine and 
in the Western uh, Church. And St. John Chrysostom argued strongly for a 25 December birth date because of the course of Zacharias's priestly service. And he also based his conclusion on findings of the Bishop uh, Julius of Rome, who had access to the uh, census records. So Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, also in the 4th century, had asked Julius, the bishop in Rome, to ascertain the date of Christ's birth from the census documents brought by Titus to Rome. Because after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, um, all records that were left there were taken back to Rome. Julius then determined the exact date of Jesus' birth to be December the 25th. Now bear in mind, they were much closer to the events in question than we are, and had access to documents we don't. So Julius, um, who was the bishop in Rome, and Cyril, who was the bishop in uh, Jerusalem, and Chrysostom, who was bishop in Constantinople, uh, they weren't alone in their reliance upon these census documents. Uh, Justin Martyr, who lived in the second century, in a detailed statement of the Christian faith addressed to the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, stated Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, as you can ascertain from the registers of the taxing, in his apology, uh, 134. So, likewise, Tertullian, another great church father, uh, he in the, second, in the third century wrote, the census of Augustus, the most faithful witness of the Lord's nativity, kept in archives of Rome. And he refers to this in books 4 and 7 in Contra Marcion, one of Tertullian's books. So, it's unfortunate we don't have access to those census records today, but perhaps the better part of wisdom is to assume that those church fathers who had access to information we don't now possess knew what they were talking about, and they were a lot close to events in question. Now, some people have said Jesus couldn't have been born in December because shepherds don't keep their sheep in the fields past late autumn. That's not true. Um, Alfred Edersheim, in his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, published in 1883, cites Hebrew sources to the fact that flocks of sheep remained in the open alike through the hottest days, through the rainy season, all year round. And that's in, in his book 2, page 186 of the Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Now, winters can be cold in Palestine, but their winters vary greatly. Some Decembers have been quite mild. And a recent study of stalagmites and stalactites in caves near Jerusalem strongly suggests the average rainfall dropped nearly 50% from about 3 feet in the stalactites in 100 AD to about 1.6 feet in 700 AD. So average winter temperatures may have varied a lot. If Mary could have given birth to a baby in a cave in a stable of Bethlehem, then these tough shepherds could have watched their flocks in the fields at the same time. So Edersheim concluded there's no adequate reason for questioning the historical accuracy of 25 December the objections generally are made on grounds which seem historically untenable. So um, there you have it. There's a body of people very much close to the event who have looked at this and have said there's no reason why 25 December can't be accepted. Uh, a lot of evidence holds this. And it's intriguing that even though we've got different calendars in the East and the West, the Eastern calendar which celebrates Christmas on the 6th of January, and that's the Eastern Orthodox, um, uh, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, and, and so on, uh, where we celebrate on 25 December in the Western calendar. So we've got two calendars, but both those calendars, devised by very different church traditions, have come to roughly the same time of year, um, between 25 December and 6 January. In other words, during the darkest time of the year in Northern Hemisphere, 
a light was born. And that's also major emphasis in the Gospels and also in Isaiah, as such as Isaiah 9. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. How interesting that the light of the world was born during the darkest time of the year in Northern Hemisphere. So I think the arguments are very strong. Interestingly enough, at one point I was hiking at Blind's Head with Dr. Professor Advocate Reverend Francis Nigeli, who has something like 24 degrees, including 14 doctorates, one of the most overqualified people in the world. At that time, he was uh, uh, the uh, principal theological lecturer at uh, the Presbyterian uh, Seminary in uh, Queensland in Australia. So I asked Dr. Francis Nigeli when he thought Jesus was born. And for the next 20 minutes, I heard him just rattle through a whole lot of facts. This is why we're climbing Lion's Head. And I wish I'd had a tape recorder because it was so brilliant. And I wish I could have taken down notes because this man uh, is so educated and he's looked into all these matters. And the long and the short of it is Dr. Francis Nigeli was convinced 25 December is the accurate date. So um, for what it's worth, uh, that's not just my perspective, but interesting, that's what early church fathers came to the conclusion of. And they had a scriptural Bible study foundation for how they came to those dates. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. This is so important uh, to cover, and it's something that I want to cover each year because there is a, a contrary opinion out there. So I want to get what Peter believes and all the evidence he has to back up his beliefs because we certainly don't want to be suggesting that the person we put at the centre of our lives, we're actually celebrating his birthday on the wrong day and of course what that leads to is it leads to people saying it's a pagan holiday and all these sorts of things could end up resulting in blasphemy whether intentional or unintentional so uh, a couple of things peter has been very busy in december so uh, what have you been up to peter that you'd like to share with the audience yes well uh, last week i was away in kwazulu natal in zululand uh, that's where uh, the British forces suffered their worst defeat in um, history at the hands of a native army, the Battle of Eastern One in 1879 against the Zulu Nation, and where the most Victoria Crosses were won in one engagement on the same day at the at defense of Rooks Drift, a little mission station on the border of, of uh, Natal, uh, during the same war with the with the Zulu. And, uh, you know, Zuland is an amazing place, and all sorts of things happened there, including uh, the um, uh, death of the last male heir of Napoleon, when the, the Prince uh, Napoleon um, uh, was killed by the Zulu during the Anglo-Zulu War, also 1879. And it was so much so that I think the British Prime Minister Disraeli made the comment, who are these Zulus who defeat our generals, convert our bishops, and have put an end to a great European dynasty? And uh, the Zulus are even in the phonetic alphabet for the military, uh, for uh, radio signals, you know, you go from Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, all the way through to Zulu. And uh, um, the, the Zulu are, are an amazing military people. Well, I was at one of the most phenomenal mission stations on Earth, Kwasi Sabanta Mission, over last week, ministering there. And we were celebrating 70 years of the founder, the German missionary, Erlo Stegen's ministry. He started his ministry preaching at age 18, uh, 70 years ago. So he's now 88. And uh, we were gathered there, and there were over 10,000 people packing out the auditorium 
the auditorium, which should have a capacity of about 9,000, but more than 10,000 packed it out. And we had the Zulu royal family. We had the Swazi royal family, both Swaziland and KwaZulu are monarchies. Uh, there, uh, all the chiefs of, of Zululand were present. And uh, we had Prince Mangasutu Butalezi, the traditional prime minister of the Zulu king, uh, giving a keynote address, all honoring this man who the king of the Zulus, King Goodwills Valentini, called God's apostle to the Zulu. And uh, uh, when you look at the life of Erla Stegen, it's absolutely phenomenal. And uh, they've been our best friends since 1987. I've been traveling to that mission regularly. And Erla uh, uh, Stegen is my mentor and example. And uh, they are very best friends uh, in Africa, without a shadow of a doubt. Phenomenal work. Quasibanta uh, Mission has just has so many amazing um, activities. They've got an award-winning school. Their students often win the top prize in the country, actually, um, for for the highest awards and so on. Uh, they have a, a phenomenal farm that uh, exports all over the place. Uh, tremendous amounts of, of food. Uh, what they grow there, uh, amazing. So they've got something like a 700-hectare farm, which is uh, uh, in so many ways an example of how other farms should be run. And to such an extent, this mission has never taken up an offering. They don't charge people for accommodation or food, uh, even at their conferences, such as ours just at. And uh, thousands of people being hosted. I mean, just think of the logistics of providing lunch for over 10,000 people uh, last Sunday, the, the uh, 11th of, of uh, December. Uh, so isn't that just an amazing way? They've got the largest Christian community radio station in the country and 24 hours a day broadcasting in Zulu, English, Afrikaans, and German. And uh, they've been going since 1995 with the radio station. They've got a teacher training college where people come from all over the world, including Europe, Korea, uh, to study at the CEDA uh, 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 College of Education. And in addition to that, they've got choirs that go out and minister all over. They've got mission stations that they've established as far afield as Romania. Um, absolutely amazing work. They've got hospitals they've established in places as far afield as Mozambique. And Kwasibantu uh, Mission is a site of revival. Erlo Stegen preached the gospel amongst the Zulu for 11 years, tent evangelism, itinerant evangelism. And then when he was despairing of, of any real success, people were coming to Christ, but he wasn't seeing transformed lives. He had a hunger for revival, which came from his ancestors. His ancestors came out with the goal of evangelizing the Zulu uh, back in the 1850s already. Um, and they even built the uh, the ship, the Candace, uh, to, to transport missionaries from Germany to, to Africa. And so he's part of a whole series of communities that, that particularly came to the Zulu people to bring the gospel to them uh, back already in the 19th century. And uh, so Erlo Stegen, a third-generation uh, German, South African, uh, was called to reach the Zulu. And in, eight, in 1966, revival broke out, phenomenal revival. Witch doctors were converted, people from all walks of life were converted, and lives were transformed. And he said for the first 11 years, he went out to, to the Zulu and... Uh, since 1966, they've been coming to him. And you could just see this church service we had uh, this last Sunday uh, was just packed out with 10,000 people. And all the leaders of KwaZulu were there. And uh, what a man honored for his dedication and sacrifice and built up this tremendous community. I asked my father-in-law, 
Reverend Bill Bethany, who put 67 years into missions. Would I overstate the case by saying that Kwasibantu Mission is the most blessed and successful mission station in Africa? And Ulla Stegan said, oh, pity you can upgrade that to the world. I said, I've been to 114 countries, and let me tell you, there's nothing to compare with this mission station. It really is phenomenal. I, I sent you some of the pictures of the events, and um, I think you can see what's going on there is absolutely extraordinary. And lives have been transformed, and I've seen miracles. They, they don't have an altar call, but people get saved all the time. Uh, they don't have healing services, but people have been healed uh, miraculously through this work. Um, they have a lot of restitution. I've seen uh, people who say they had to hire a truck to return all the stolen goods to the people it's stolen from. And uh, uh, they've had fire services where people bring their witchcraft elements and uh, things like that and pile them up in a massive bonfire, burn them. You know, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, you know, burning their boats, so to speak, uh, like Cortez's men. And uh, the, the idea that, um, that they must do thorough restitution is, is very strong. At it's, it's a strong emphasis on revival, on repentance, on restitution, on holy living, on confession. And um, it's it's tremendous to go then. When you're in this auditorium, if you look closely at some of the pictures I sent, you'll see that they've got five languages up front uh, on uh, written into the, the woodwork. And in the middle, it's Here bleib bei uns, which is Lord abide with us in German. It's also got in English in Afrikaans, in Zulu, and in Sutu. And uh, all the services there are translated either from Zulu into English or from English into Zulu. And then there's groups scattered around the hall who will be able to hear through headphones and so on in German, in French, in Portuguese, in Sutu, and other languages. So uh, it's it's a, a really multicultural, multilingual, international center of revival. And uh, we praise God that there is this hope that when God moves in power, back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, yeah, I'm looking at those photos as well. Do you have, um, uh, you sent me a YouTube video that I haven't looked at uh, as yet. Do you have a link that uh, for a newsletter or something that people can uh, see these photos as yet? <coughs> yes, um, I will be uploading those soon. Um, what I can do in, in the meantime, because unfortunately at my mission uh, headquarters in Cape Town, a lot of my staff, including my webmasters, on leave, we're on skeleton staff right now during this time, so there might be a delay with ours, but I'm going to send you a link also to the website of Quasabanta Mission. You'll be able to see some of the pictures and videos right on their site. Um, I'll be uploading onto our website as soon as I can too. I'll send you those links. Thank you. I've I put the the title of um, the email you sent me, uh, and it's come up with Gateway News. Kwasibantu celebrates founder seventy years in ministry. So uh, yeah. Oh, we we can do better than Gateway News. That that's just one little news item from a news source. But right on their website, we'll we'll get better than that. That's um, great. So folks, yes. we will include that link in the post for today's show. Well, you'll know that because this is a show that's only available on my website and I'm on Peter's Frontline Fellowship website also because uh, it's a Sunday and we're not picked up by the other broadcasters that syndicate us at the weekend. But uh, before we go, Peter, um, you're going to be back in on the 5th 
uh, we're going to broadcast the show that we record on the 3rd of January. But I know January is always a busy month for you. Uh, what are, are your plans and Frontline Fellowship's plans for next year? Over to you. Yes, well, um, we always end our year uh, with lots and lots of activity. And we start a new year running. Uh, it's been like that for, for many decades now. Um, because we start a year with two training programs. Uh, the one is the Biblical Worldview Summit, which is a week-long intensive worldview program, which is also uh, very much mind uh, and uh, muscles being stretched and it's, it's body, soul, and spirit. So B- Biblical Worldview Summit for a week, and then we have a three-week Great Commission course, which is a cross-cultural missions training program, training people in Muslim evangelism, how to reach Hindus, Marxist, secular people, a wide range of, of practical boots on the ground. And this includes far more physical stress. And um, we put people under under strain. We have them not only PT every morning and hikes up and over the mountain, but night hikes and Bible smuggling simulation operations. And it's, it's um, quite a lot of emphasis on the academic, but also practical getting out in the streets, getting into Muslim areas, evangelizing, teaching people how to win people to Christ, how to lead people to the Lord. So the Great Commission course is very uh, hands-on and practical, and uh, we only do it once a year. Uh, but uh, So that's coming up in January, and if people go onto the FrontlineMissionSA.org website, FrontlineMissionSA.org, they'll see under events there's Biblical Worldview Summit post and Great Commission. It can go on there's, there's videos, pictures, reports, um, details about the upcoming uh, programs and so on. So if anyone's in the area or wants to take part, we've had people – fly in from as far afield as Canada and New Zealand and Australia, um, uh, Germany and Switzerland, and um, from as far afield as, as Ireland, uh, all the way through um, Sudan and so on, uh, Pakistan even, uh, coming through to take part in our Great Commission course. So if anyone's interested, they can email me, peter at frontline.org.za, or they can check on our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you, Peter. And uh, Peter's email will also be included in the post for this show, so you can just copy and paste that. And also, if you aren't able to attend, but you want to be part of helping people who can, then you can arrange sponsorship for someone else to attend, or simply uh, make a contribution to the cost of the Great Commission course coming up in just a week or so's time. So, um, Peter, is there anything else you would like to say before we go? Well, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. We need to remember the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for the season. And uh, he's the greatest man ever born. He's the greatest man who's ever lived. Uh, He is our priority. And he's coming again to judge the living and dead. We need to be ready and need to challenge people. Remember whose birthday we're celebrating? Uh, to ask people, what gift are you giving to Jesus, whose birthday we're celebrating today? And uh, asking people uh, questions like, when do you plan to bow to Christ? Today in the day of grace, as the Lamb of God who takes away sin's world, or then in the day of judgment, when you'll have to bow to him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, as the lion, the conqueror, the eternal judge. So I think it's uh, this is a great time for evangelism, for witnessing, and whether you're just sending messages by social media or cards or visiting neighbors, um, uh, family around the table, this is a wonderful time to remind people of what is most important and who is most important and to really plan our future in the light of eternity. 
So thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for the opportunity for five years in a row, um, giving Christmas messages as part of Andrew Carrington Hitchcock. And uh, it's a privilege and a joy. Enjoy a Christ-centered Christmas and a God-honoring New Year. Thank you, Peter. And I know I can speak for the audience to say we've been delighted to have you on ever since you started all those years ago. And long may your Christmas message continue. You will always have a home here. So that being said, I want to thank Peter so much for joining us on this special day for a show entitled The Real Story of the Greatest Man Ever to Be Born, Peter's Christmas Message. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, happy Christmas and bye for now.